Thank you, Tim. I'll be uh, upfront with you and say that one of my favourite Sundays of the year to speak to and to celebrate is Christ the King. It is Today is the final Sunday of our church year, the cycle. So we start a, a new year in the church context, uh, Advent Sunday next week. And Christ the King is the culmination of uh, where all our readings, our narratives, our storylines and our festivals have been leading us. Christ the King isn't so much celebrated as though well, Christ will be enthroned as King when he returns. Christ always has been sovereign. Um, so we're not marking something that is a new event but it's recognising where all these different storylines, these different uh, remembrances, observances we have throughout our church year have been leading us. Advent talks about the coming of Christ and leads us towards the Christmas season, the incarnation of Christ taking human form. We go through the, uh, the epiphany, the appearance of Christ, uh, the manifestation to the uh, the wise men from the east. We have Jesus' um, life, his, his uh, dedication, his baptism, his public ministry, culminating in his uh, betrayal, the crucifixion, his uh, resurrection, ascension, the coming of the Spirit, Pentecost. And then we have a whole season where we're focused on the life of the church. That's what all the various different storylines that we follow and it walks us through the great biblical narrative that is the gospel itself. If you draw all those threads together and ask, where does this leave us? It leaves us with this one deep truth on the sovereignty of Christ, who is head and shoulders above all else. Christ the King is the celebration because Christ is uniquely qualified to do what he has done and is doing and will do. There is none to compare with him. And we recognize that his worthiness is unparalleled. And it is a source of both genuine awe and true comfort and devotion. We are entrusting ourselves to someone who has acted in this world in a way which just leaves us with a sense of beyond words. So whilst I love celebrating Christ the King, it's a challenge to speak on because words become inadequate and we just begin to glimpse greater truths. So I'm using quite intentionally a number of uh, images to try and help us to explore that theme this morning. One of those images that came to me this week about how we, we just begin to glimpse, to touch on truths that are so deep that it's beyond our comprehension, way beyond our ability to say, yes, I can see that clearly. No, we, we glimpse a depth and a richness. It's a bit like, I don't know where we are, find ourselves in our spiritual life, our spiritual journey. Sometimes it, I feel as though I'm just in like the toddler's pool up in Tasmore Park. You never go for the toddler's pool, even with their new extension. We can dip our feet in, we can even go up to our knees if you're a brave toddler. Um, and uh, sometimes we go beyond the toddler's pool, we may go into a full pool that we can 
dive into and swim and I don't know whether you recall, I can recall the first time going out of my depth and you go, oh, I'm out of my depth and you think how long can I last there before you go back and get to a place where you can stand on tippy toes and have your head above water. I'm not sure if you ever have ever tried to swim in a diving pool, you know, the ones that are four or five metres deep. It's very disconcerting because it's seriously deep and I don't stay long in a diving pool. But that compares, compared to um, snorkelling or going offshore where you go through a reef and you suddenly get beyond a reef and there's a whole shelf belonging. I remember seeing that at uh, Norlunga where you go off that beautiful reef and the fish and you suddenly look over the edge and you can't see the bottom. It's suddenly so deep. And that is just the fringes of the ocean depths. We are surrounded day in and day out, 24 hours a day, by an ocean that covers this world. The majority of that ocean has never been glimpsed by any human. It is so deep. We glimpse something that is part of our living experience but is so beyond our ability to, to even sort of picture what that might look like. And that is just a glimpse of this universe. What we glimpse in this passage I would describe from Colossians 1 today is like the diving pool. (laughs) It is deep and it is sort of breathtaking and exhilarating. But we know we are just at the edges of something that is beyond our ability to name, let alone to picture. So where does it take us in Christ the King? It gives us a view of the truth about Christ and the greater reality, the greatest reality about life and existence that can only be perceived through the eyes of faith. This is a spiritual view that in human terms is beyond sight. And the contrast is seen in the first of our readings, well, sorry, the gospel reading from Luke 23, where we have Jesus viewed through the eyes of the world, in this case the Roman world, as he was nailed, as he was executed in the most literally excruciating death they could think of. They put this parody of a sign above him. Jesus, the King of the Jews, in three different languages. And it wasn't that they actually believed that Jesus was any sort of notable king. It was more this figure, pitiful figure on the cross is saying, is this the best you can do by way of a king? Because he certainly doesn't compare with the Roman emperor or the Roman power. That is how Jesus was viewed through human eyes, through social eyes. He had no army, he had no power, he had no political movement, there was no palace or finery. What sort of king is this? Yet through the eyes of faith, we see that same narrative, that same figure so differently. A bit later in our service, we're going to have a statement of faith based on Philippians 2 that though he was equal with God, shared the fullness of God, he emptied himself and took on human form, and not just human form, the form of a slave, and not just in the form of a slave, but one who died the death of a slave. That is crucifixion. This is someone who used his sovereignty and power for a mission and a work 
that is unparalleled in history and has made a difference unlike any other act in history. This isn't a sovereign or a person who sits back and enjoys the trappings of power, but this is someone who is at work using that power and that authority in a responsible way, in a way in which is honouring the mission and purposes of God that Jesus was sent into the world to fulfil. Viewed through those eyes, we see that work of cross in another way. You did that for me, for us. The contrast is seen in the two criminals, one on either side of Jesus, one who continued that mockery and said, if you were the Messiah, the, the King, then save yourself and save us. Yet the other criminal saw Jesus differently. He saw someone who was worthy of much greater than this, who did not deserve the crucifixion, but someone to reach out to, to plead, to beg. And so Jesus had these wonderful words of response to the, the criminal who saw Jesus as a heavenly being. Today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. So that's uh, by way of an introduction into the passage that I want to focus on from Colossians 1. This is a, an incredibly rich and deep uh, passage that takes us into depths that go beyond our ability to explain. And uh, one of the interests I have is in the iconography, the uh, imagery of Christus Rex, Christ the King. It's a historic one that has gone right throughout the ages and different cultures have sought to give expressions to it. We're getting, we are close to it here at St Matthew's in our, our uh, memorial window at the end of the sanctuary. It's the risen, ascended Christ that we see in our window there in his glory. Though Christus Rex would just have a crown <laughs> atop it to show that the kingship, the sovereignty of Christ as well. And there's various different ways in which artists try to convey something of the, the awesomeness of this figure of Christ risen, ascended and in glory. This is taken from a, a Louvre University in um, Indiana in the US. And I'd, I love the imagery because not only is it mixed media between a sculpture and the, uh, the stained glass behind it, but it's, it is so complex and so rich and has so many different parts to it that we you can't sort of take a picture of it to do justice to as you viewed it from different angles and different directions and it's actually called the winter light the winter morning light that the different light that comes shows it all in a different way it's constantly moving and changing I love that complexity to it so this passage that we have in Colossians 1 is almost like this it's you, you can't view it other than looking at individual parts but to see how they come together and form a picture that is a picture of glory so we the words themselves that come in this little section in colossians one um, are probably an early form of creed the early church probably recited these words to each other as like we have the apostles creed this is probably a very early form that uh, may have even have been set to music we don't know but it has a, a form that would have been familiar. And even though the words themselves are not that 
difficult to understand. The way in which they are woven together is where the richness is found. These various different understandings and images and truths about Jesus are woven together into a beautiful picture. The introduction to it, and you might have noticed that uh, when Tim read the passage, he broke in halfway through a sentence. It's a long sentence that Paul wrote. He did write some long sentences. And uh, rather than breaking it up with a full stop, the, the translators have kept the long sentence. But we, we jumped into it halfway through verse 12. And it sets the scene of why this is such a, a life-changing a truth to celebrate. This is the jewel of the gospel. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the domain of that which is evil and messy and painful and unjust and leads us to despair, from the domain of our newsfeed as we look at the realities of the world around us. And if that was to prevail, if that was to to win, that would be even more dreadful. But God has delivered us from that domain, that human realm, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, under his sovereignty, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's the introduction into this passage. And then Paul gives them one of the most incredible statements. Christ is the image of the invisible God. God is so much bigger than our brains to try and comprehend. The enormity of a, a majestic sovereign being comes into focus through the person of Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. We look at his character, we look at his example, we look at his attitude of mind, his values, his teachings, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. There we see God in a form that has entered into our world, that is tangible. Jesus is the image of this invisible God. In fact, the fullness of God can be found in human form in the person of Jesus. Fully God, just as he is fully human. In chapter 2, Paul elaborates that a bit further in Colossians. In Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. This incredible juxtaposition that this Jesus who emptied himself of that fullness to enter the world in human form now shares that fullness to those who turn to Christ. I did to warn you, it's mind-blowing as we begin to sit and to dwell with those truths. But Jesus is head and shoulders. There is none comparable to him in all of human history, and certainly in human form. The imagery is used to try and convey the richness of the work of Jesus. And we can also see it in the book of Revelation. 
Revelation is addressed in the first instances to seven churches. And these seven churches in Asia become a, a prism by which we can view ourselves. Somewhere in the characteristic of those seven churches, we can identify ourselves. Across those seven churches, Christ said, I know all about you. I know everything about you as a church. And these things are good. These things are wonderful. These things, not so much. And those things you really should stop. There's a report card given across those seven churches. But then for those seven churches and for all churches like ourselves ever since, the drama moves to say, well, let's take our eyes off these churches because if our hope is through those churches, I'm not sure my hope is that robust. But let's locate those seven churches before the doorway of heaven. So in chapter 4 of Revelation, is this wonderful verse, the doors of heaven are open and through those doors we glimpse that greater reality. And what do we glimpse? There's a drama of all creation, the four corners of the earth worshipping around the throne of Christ. But then a drama moves up because in that scene there is a scroll that has to be opened. The scroll holds the future of this world, the future of God's people. And the cry goes out, who is worthy to open this scroll? We can't think of anyone from Israel and anyone who is worthy to open this scroll. Until one is found who is worthy, the Lion of Judah is worthy. But suddenly that lion, that powerful figure, transforms into a lamb, a slain lamb, as an image for Christ. He is the only one worthy to open that scroll. So the image of the slain lamb is also an image of a power and a work of God that defies our understanding. But through that work of the, the lamb who is worthy, God has changed the direction of human history. God has changed the future of this world. Within Revelation... As it continues, and there's a whole cycle of dramas and uh, of uh, happenings upon human history, it, those cycles are broken up with a heavenly chorus. And that heavenly chorus, the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who go to song, provide a commentary on what is happening. Commentary on the work of Christ. When we gather in our worship... We open up those doors through scripture and we hear that commentary help us to understand and make sense of our world, our life, all the challenges that we face, our doubts, our fears, our anxieties, our hopes. And when we view them in the light of that big picture, suddenly we know that we are part of something that is so much bigger than ourselves. And we are part of a company of people that will always be in the presence of our Lord. This is the storyline that Christ the King gathers together. So Paul continues, Christ the Son is the image of the invisible God. Then he continues, he is the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, some of you would know that I'm very much an amateur gardener. I enjoy the garden. And uh, don't ask me the names of things, let alone their proper name. I just make them up as we go. You've got to try and catch me out. One of the things I do have discovered about gardening is the importance of a taproot. Taproot is what makes all the difference, whether it's a, a rose or a shrub or whether a tree. If the taproot is healthy, then the tr- there's a good chance that that tree or that shrub will survive whatever's thrown at it. Even if you have an extensive ground cover happening right across a bank or somewhere else, it will be fed by one taproot that is sustaining a whole wider growth that is happening. And that struck me as I was reflecting on this passage that uh, when it talks about in him all things hold together. For me it's as though Jesus is the the taproot for all of life's experience. All creation is fed by Jesus, the life-giving taproot that sustains and strengthens and enables that growth to occur. So that final verse there, talks about an energy, a vitality that is more than we can picture. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The source of life and hope and light, all that comes with that. But Paul was not finished. And he says, what does that look like? Rather than that general picture, through him, God has reconciled everything to himself. Not just people, but all creation is now reconciled. He's made peace, made shalom with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. We now view the cross so differently compared to those onlookers who are mocking Jesus. We see a power at work that made such a profound difference to bring about reconciliation and peace. And this Christ, Paul continues, is the head of the body, another image, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. That is to say, those who have died in the Lord will share in his resurrection and the eternal life that he has gone before to establish and to prepare for us as well. We are in a company of people gathered together unlike any other company of people in all of history, in all of the world. No matter what civilization or empire or community you talk about, there is no association, no gathering of people that can compares to the people of God who have been gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with a picture of a being who is both as intimate and personal as to know us by name. Jesus, uh, Fiona said to me this morning in a, uh, a lovely aside as we were reflecting on this, that this same Christ the King is the same being who sits on the end of John's bed and speaks to him. And he knows us by name and invites us to his table and offers the, the bread and the wine as a way saying, you are my family, you are welcome at this home, at this table. 
You are my children. The same God who says, I love you. And my love is led to this amazing sacrifice that he's made on our part and the triumph and the victory that comes through it. It leads us to awe, true awe, in a sense of we have no more faithful or loving or trustworthy hands to, to place our lives but into the hands of this risen and ascended Christ. It's hard to know where to finish at this space other than just to reflect on the image. But I've chosen a song at this stage as an interlude and it talks about God in Christ being the light of the world, an active light. It rehearses not just that great stories of what Christ has done, but how that is an expression of, our, of God's love and the hope that we have. So I invite you now just to, to listen to this piece um, as we reflect on not just the enormity of Christ, but that love that embraces us and has broken into our world, into our fears and doubts. Enjoy this piece. <laughs> 